The Christmas story with its message of the incarnation of God, the Holy One, taking on human form and coming into the world on a saving mission. Well, that story has for 20 centuries fired the imagination with wonder, with gratefulness, and with joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, says the words of the popular carol. But joy has not always been felt at Christmas. In our Protestant Reformed tradition, shaped so powerfully by that doer John Calvin and John Knox, worship, even at Christmas, had precious little joy in it. Worship was plain and ordinary, with a tone of high moral seriousness. After all, sin and death were serious matters. Joy would have to wait till heaven. Sermons were long and heavy. Church sanctuaries, especially in those big stone churches in Europe, were not heated in the wintertime. So people sat with their coats on, um, shivering in the cold. And that made joy even harder to come by at Christmas. How can you be joyous when you're shivering in the cold? Well, this morning I'd like to share a story with you. It's a most unusual Christmas story. It's set in Holland more than a century ago, and it recounts an experience that the author of the story, Pierre van Passen, had as a boy in his Dutch Reformed church. If you enter into this story, and if you hang in till the end, something of the joyous Christmas spirit, I think, will shine through for you. So this is the story. It's called Uncle Kay's Protests. I do not recall the year. It may have been 1911 when an incident occurred that makes the memory of an old-fashioned Calvinist Christmas linger in my mind both with dread and with amusement. It was bitter cold in the great church that morning. Worshippers pulled their collars of their overcoats up around their chins and sat with their hands in their pockets. Women wrapped their shawls tightly around their shoulders for the vast nave and the transept were unheated, except for little wooden boxes open on one side to hold a small earthen pot with charcoal, the heat escaping through five holes at the top of the box, or the stove, as it was called, was supposed to keep your feet warm. The preacher that morning was a certain Dr. Van Horn, a man of small stature with dark eyes and a coal black beard. He was a representative of the ultra-Orthodox or confessional faction. Nobody in our family ever went to hear him 
preach. But that Christmas morning, we made an exception. For it so happened that on Christmas Eve, the organist, Franz Pomard, had sent word to my Uncle Kay's that he was too ill to fulfill his duties at the service on the morrow. Kay's, happy over the opportunity to play the great organ, now sat in the loft, peering down through the green baize curtains on the congregation of about 2,000 souls. Would you believe it? And on the pulpit, which stood 15 feet high, a sculptured wooden tower with its back to one of the pillars in the middle of the nave. The organ, a towering structure, rested on two marble columns and stood in a niche on the west side of the church, on the site where in pre-Reformation days had been the high altar. It reached upward a full 125 feet. Although quite old, it still had a superb tone. It had three keyboards, one free pedal, 38 so-called speaking voices, and 48 stops. The wind was provided by a man treading over a huge pedal consisting of 12 parallel beams. By stepping on these beams, air was blown into the bellows. A narrow passage between the pipes led from the organist's seat to the pedal room. Uncle Kays took my brother and myself with him into the loft that morning. In his sermon, Dr. Van Horn soon struck a pessimistic note. Christmas, he said, signified the descent of God into the tomb of human flesh. That charnel house of corruption and dead bones. He called it an inconceivable humiliation for the divine majesty to have left his glory in heaven behind and to have entered the vile cesspool um, of time by clothing himself with the mantle of our sordid humanity. Can you believe it? He dealt almost sadistically on our depravity, our utter worthlessness, the blackness of our hearts, tainted as we were from birth with original sin. We were worms, we were gall, we were abject, contemptible, and black as the night with sin. Pretty bad, huh? Kays listened spellbound as the minister grew more dismal by the minute. Christmas was God's descent into hell. The men and the women of the congregation bowed their heads in awful awareness of guilt for God's distress. As the sermon progressed, and sermons usually lasted a full two hours, would you believe it? Two hours. Kays grew more and more restless. 
He scratched his head. He pulled his hair back and forth onto his face, giving himself alternately a ludicrous and a sinister appearance. Then again, he tugged at his mustache and goatee in a manner betraying extreme nervous tension and mental agitation. He could scarcely sit still for a moment, jumping up and sitting back down, jumping up again. Man, man, he muttered, shaking his head. Are these the good tidings? Is this the simple glad message? And turning to my brother and myself, he whispered fiercely, that man smothers the hope of the world in the dustbin of theology. We sang a doleful psalm by way of interlude, and the sermon, which had already lasted an hour and 40 minutes, now moved toward its climax. It ended in so deep a note of despair that across the span of years, I still feel a recurrence of the anguish I then experienced. It was quite possible, nay, it was more than likely, the doctor threw out by way of a parting shot that of his entire congregation, not a single soul would enter the kingdom of heaven. Many were called, but few were chosen. The number and the identity of the elect was God's own secret, guarded from before the beginning of time, which we should not even try to unravel, for that would be pride and pre presumption. Man's eternal fate was settled, he said, and nothing, not good works or contrition, nor piety or merit, not the most ardent prayers could change by as much as one iota the finality of the divine decree. Uncle Kay's shook with indignation as the minister concluded. He seated himself on the organ bench and began leafing through a volume of, of box postludes. But after one glance, he slammed the book shut. For a moment, I feared that he would not play any postlude at all and would simply walk off in a huff. I had known him to do rash things before in a fit of exasperation or impatience. Down below in the church, Dr. Van Horn could be seen lifting his hands for the benediction. Kays looked away from the scene and suddenly, he threw off his jacket. He kicked off his shoes. He pulled out all the stops on the organ. And from the nave, reverberating against the vaulted ceiling, came the unctuous tone of the doctor. When he had finished speaking, there followed a moment of intense silence. Presently, the minister put on his velvet cap and holding up the skirts of his Geneva gown, he began the descent of the spiral pulpit stair. Six of the elders dressed in frock coats 
stood waiting for him at the foot of the steps. They formed a small procession. The elders walked in pairs and the pastor bringing up the rear. They went in the direction of the consistory chambers, the entrance to which lay through a door situated directly beneath the organ. Is he down, asked Kays, who had just pulled the bell cord to give the signal to the organ attendant to begin working the bellows. He sat facing the keyboard, his back to the nave, and could therefore not see what went on below. Yes, I said, they are walking this way. Kays waited one instant longer while we heard the air pouring into the old instrument. His face was set and grim, and he looked extremely pale. He was biting his mustache, and I noticed that his chin trembled just like my, mother, my, 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 my mother's chin trembled when she was overcome with emotion. Then throwing his head back and opening his mouth, as if he were going to shout, he brought his fingers down on the keyboard. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. The organ roared the tremendous finale of Handel's chorus from the Messiah. And again, with an abrupt crashing effect, as if a million voices burst into song, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The music swelled and rolled with the boom of thunder against the vaulted dome, returning again and again with the hallelujah blast of praise like breakers bursting on the shore. It was a storm of music that Keys unleashed, a tornado of melody. Heaven and earth, the voices of men and women and angels seemed joined in a hymn of praise to a God who did not doom and damn, but who so loved, loved, loved the world. Kays played on. Mountains leaped with joy. Icebergs melted. The hills and the seas clapped their hands in gladness. The perspiration was rolling in big drops off his fine face. His eyes were blurred with tears, but his hands moved over the keyboard with speed and force. His stalking feet flew over the pedals as if their owner were dashing in haste on a desperate errand. Now the Vox Humana softly intoned the tender plaintive recital that comes just before the end. It was like the still small voice that followed the whirlwind of Elijah's vision in the wilderness. Kays beckoned to me with his head. I stepped nearer. More air, he called out. Tell Leonard to give me more air. I ran back quickly behind the pipe cases into the bellows chamber where the attendant, Leonard Bowles, was stamping down the beams like a madman, transported by the music, waving his arms in the air. 
more air, I shouted. He wants more air. Hallelujah, Leonard shouted back. Hallelujah. The man grabbed me by the arm, and together we fairly broke into a trot on the pedal beams. Once more, the organ's notes were swelling into that crescendo of hallelujahs, which seems to reach forth to the end of time. Then the anthem came to a close. But Kay's was not through yet. He pushed in a few stops, and now the organ sang out sweetly what is the Dutch people's most beloved evangelical song, the name above every name, the name of Jesus, which is sung in Holland to a tune very similar to Home Sweet Home. We sang it with all our hearts. Leonard, my brother and I, and below in the church, the congregation on its way out could be heard joining the chorus. Kays had triumphed. His face was bathed in sweat. He wiped his forehead. I noticed that his handkerchief was wringing wet. In the sub-zero temperature, the steam rose from his body. Leonard Bowles came out of the bellows chamber and stood gazing at my uncle as if he beheld a phantom. Kays had finished putting on his shoes, and now he threw his Sunday cloak over his shoulders. He didn't say a word as we clattered down the stone steps of the narrow staircase that ran from the organ loft into the nave. But as he flung open the iron door at the foot of the stairs, we stood face to face with Dr. Van Horn and the elders. Crowding behind them were hundreds of members of the congregation, curiously craning their necks to, wit to witness the encounter between the doctor and the organist. You, exclaimed the pastor, even before we closed the door behind us. You, how did you get up there? Since when are you the organist? If I had known, he didn't finish. The sentence for Kays interrupted him by explaining the circumstances of Franz Pomard's illness. But why did you do that? Why did you play that? Dr. Van Horn, in turn, interrupted angrily. That, said Kays, that was a protest against your sermon. You have no right to protest, fairly shouted the minister. I did protest, nevertheless, said Kays. I protested because you dishonored humanity. He got no further. Ketter screamed the minister, and his fanatical black eyes darted flames of wrath. Heretic, madman, anarchist that you are, go away from God's house. Never, he yelled, never do you hear, will you play that tune again. Never will you, Kays threw his head back and broke into laughter. 
And then, bending forward, for he towered over the raging pastor, my uncle said quietly, you are wrong again, doctor. I shall be playing that hymn only much better, I trust, up there in heaven on the day when you and millions and millions of the elect will come marching in. With that, he swept his hand from his cloak in a gesture that embraced the whole world. End of story. <laughs>